Welcome back. Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650. I am Jamie Dodd filling in uh, for just today and tomorrow for Mike Halford. Halford will be back on Monday. A-Dog and Laddie are here, of course. Uh, Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, do we have our next guest on the line? We do. He is uh, golf analyst Adam Stanley. We're very pleased to be joined up by him now. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you? No problem. I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're doing well. Uh, Adam, is the biggest debate in golf right now Lucas Glover versus uh, Justin Thomas? His pants? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Also just also Lucas Glover versus khaki pants. Versus the humidity. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, you know, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a great question because obviously, you know, Lucas Glover is the <laughs> – it's the hottest golfer on the planet, no, no pun intended, you know, having won twice in a row, but he's just, he's never been a part of the Ryder Cup team in, in his career. I mean, we're talking about almost, almost a two decade long career and obviously he wants to be part of this team. And, and then Justin Thomas on the other side of things has had a very, very poor season and, and, you know, tried to prove to everyone that he was going to have one of these, you know, last minute kind of um, magical runs through the playoffs and look at me, I've got the momentum and et cetera, et cetera. And it totally backfired. He played really poorly in the uh, two out of the three events that ended his season. But on the other side of that coin, he's been, you know, part of the, the team fabric for, you know, five, six years now. Everybody likes him. He can be paired well with someone like Jordan Spieth and on and on and on. So really it comes down to Zach Johnson. Um, you know, is he going to go with kind of the, the glue guy, uh, you know, the guy that, that knows uh, that will thrive in a team environment uh, or, or the hot hand? And, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big question right now, for sure. Do you think Lucas Glover essentially has to win the Tour Championship? Or, or come pretty close. <laughs> come pretty close. I mean, if Lucas Glover wins this week again, three in a row, yeah. like I think it's a, it's a total slam dunk. Um, I'm pretty sure he's guaranteed to make it to the Tour Championship, and it will kind of depend on um, you know how he plays over the next couple of weeks. If this was just a flash in the pan, or or if the momentum truly is is on his side. Um, but kind of like just zooming out a little bit, it's kind of wild that the American team could include uh, Wyndham Clark, Brian Harmon, and Lucas Glover. And if mm-hmm. you told, you know, every the pundits, if you will, uh, that those guys would be on this squad eight, even eight months ago, not not just 12 months ago, 24 months ago, you would have been just like looked at like you were, you know, having, having a tough go of, of your life right there. But yeah. that just may be what the American squad looks like because those are the guys who played the best this season. The Americans are still going to be the favorites though, right? I don't, see now, I'm, I'm not too sure to be honest. I think that the the European side, uh, they they are as a collective kind of rounding into form a little bit better than than maybe the individuals of of the United States side. Yeah, I mean certainly on paper, you look at um, you know where the guys are in the world rankings and what their their resumes are, and you think like how how can these guys lose? But um, you know how having Zach Johnson have to go down so far in the in the point standings, mm-hmm. even like a Tony Finau or something like that, um, you know, to to make these kind of stalwarts a part of the team again uh, is going to be is going to be tough for them. So I think, uh, sure, the United States is probably still the favorite, but maybe by a little bit. I would argue that perhaps 
right now, based on form, the collective that is the European team is, is probably in a little bit of a better place. Um, but it'll all kind of come down to, to, to that week, that particular week, and uh, and who's playing the golf course really well, because a lot of these guys haven't seen this golf course before. Yeah, what's a Ryder Cup in Italy going to be like? Yeah, <laughs> probably a lot of very nice food, I would yeah, say. Yeah, the, catering, yeah. the catering, I would say, would yeah. be I mean, it sounds awesome. Solid. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds tremendous. Um, I think from the one thing that the golf course, you know, from some of the photos and stuff like that, is that this it's extremely tight. Like, the, the European side have set it up, um, you know, to really try to lean into their strengths of, of accuracy and, and putting, which, um, you know, has kind of been the long-term uh, problem for the United States. You look at Whistling Straits, where they had the previous Ryder Cup. That was just like a huge, big barn. The United States team, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, Dustin Johnson, um, you know, any of those long hitters who are probably not going to be part of the team this time, but, you know, they could just hit it wherever, find it, you know, bang it on the green, make things happen. And they won by, they won by a lot. Um, Marco Simone in Italy is basically 180 degree difference from, from whistling straights. Um, I want to talk a bit about team golf while we're talking about Ryder cup. Um, one of the ideas apparently that the PGA tour is going to investigate at the behest of the Saudis, it sounds like (laughs) is the idea of team golf. And I wonder if like the team concept could be one of these things that the Saudis invest in, like as part of this new enterprise, maybe they're, maybe they're the sponsors of that or something along those lines. Um, do you think it could work? I, I don't think it couldn't work. I don't think that there's like a large enough body of work for us to know, like us as, as you know, kind of the, the golf fan public to know like what is, how are they going to do it? Because we know the big, big team. We know the 12 v 12. We know how those sorts of things end up working over multiple days, et cetera, et cetera. The team aspect of live golf, I would argue, has been distracting. That would yeah. be probably how I would describe that because the team names are weird you you don't really understand who's doing what and where um you know you try to follow along and you can't quite do it um so i don't think that they've got it nailed right now but i think if you know if you've got your team of of three or your team of four and all season long there's you know maybe breaks in the actual stroke play schedule and you've got kind of a, a team event over a weekend uh and then at the end of the season you know the top four teams maybe play down to um you know to to become the team champion versus kind of these every single week there's a team mm-hmm. champion and it's part of the leaderboard maybe it will work but um yeah i mean having them being the the pith the, the saudi uh entity maybe maybe because they've been such fans of it maybe that is exactly what they're going to put their name on to and, and then the PGA tour, I guess in air quotes right now, they'll just have kind of their, their normal week in and week out um, stroke play schedule. I mean, I mean, again, this is maybe a year we're looking at that, yeah. maybe 2025, 2026, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of questions around that. And, and I do not think kind of to put a bow on, on this, I don't think that, you know, the team golf concept uh, is going to be going away. That's for sure. Well, I just wonder if they could turn, uh, if they could like make franchises, do you know what I mean? And those franchises <laughs> yeah. could be owned by like Tiger could own one. They could give him one. Rory could own one or I, I don't know. I, 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 I do have time for it though. 
Like the, but but the 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 thing with the the live thing is like nobody yeah. cared about the teams because they were just <laughs> thrown together and the names were weird and the logos were weird and the golfers weren't good enough right on on the live tour yeah. to to care about that sort of stuff. Certainly but, at launch, 100%. but even but even from like a betting perspective, like I, I I do wonder if the PGA Tour is going to because it sounded to me like they were like yeah I guess we'll we'll investigate this because the Saudis want us to. But that they weren't like completely on board. But the more I think about it, if you can get the fans, and this would be the challenge, to become emotionally attached to a certain team on the PGA Tour, it could work. I just don't know if you're going to be able to do that because you have the, like when the Ryder Cup's on, you obviously have the um, international. You know, you're either cheering for the Americans or you're cheering for the Europeans, right? Like that's that's easy to do. But how do you create fan like a fan ties, emotional ties to teams on the PGA Tour? And and I think it kind of comes back to your point from a minute ago about about the players themselves. You know, like I don't think anyone really cares about like the cliques because you know Graham McDowell hasn't been relevant in a half a decade, right? But if all of a sudden there was a team that was like, you know, the, the Texas Rangers that yes. was Jordan Spieth and mm-hmm. Will Zalatoris and Scotty Scheffler. And that was a squad and they were going up against, you know, let's the guys from South beach and it was Rory <laughs> and it was JT and it was Brooks. Now all of a sudden it's like, wow, those guys are on a team and they're from different nations and they're, you know, and there's like a brand behind them. I, I do. And because they're notable and there's a lot happening behind who they are as individuals, plus they're, um, you know, they're making waves on, on, you know, playing together. You know, I think that there's, you know, there's some momentum behind that, but yeah, I think where, where live fell short on the team side of things is, is just that the, the individuals that do make up the franchises, you know, just, just aren't the, just aren't the top players. I mean, even, um, you know, even Dustin Johnson's team is, you know, doesn't really have three other extremely notable guys uh, on it. But if the PGA Tour leans into it and says, you know, hey, you California guys, there's another team. You know, there's Max right. Homa and there's Colin Morikawa and whomever. Then, then you've got some, you've got some real juice behind that. I think. And I think if they can put together some good merch, that might help sure. too. Um, how many Canadians yeah. do you think will be playing? in the tour championship. Uh, Nick Taylor for sure is going to be there. Uh, and then there's three others that have a chance, I suppose, Corey Connors, Adam Hadwin and Adam Svensson. Yes. So I think, I mean, I think Corey like has, has more than a chance. Corey, you know, thanks to his kind of final round on Sunday last week, guy shot six under par 29 for his final nine holes. That'll work. Uh, that moved him up a lot in the in the standings. So he's inside the top thirty now. I think he's twenty fifth on the standings. So I, w- I would give Corey kind of a, a really good shot at, at making it. Um, Adam Hadwin and Adam Spencer they need to do something this week. Now it's not obviously totally out, out of the realm of possibility. Uh, the points are, are quadrupled this week. So you know even a you know even a tie for sixth or something like that for one of those guys, depending on whomever else. Uh, may may make some noise i think would be enough for those guys but yeah like automatically two i would say are, are going to make it and and kind of long long shot for three 
making it to the Tour Championship. Uh, final question, Adam. Are you going to be out in Vancouver for the Canadian Women's Open at Shaughnessy next week? Yes, I was good. I was waiting for you guys to ask me, but yes, I'll be there. So I fly in uh, from Ontario on Sunday, actually. I'm hosting a, a Q&A event with Morgan Pressel and with Elena Sharp at Northview on uh, on Monday in the nice. morning, and then I'll be out at, uh, I'll be out at Shaughnessy uh, every day uh, come Monday afternoon through till the end. So I can't wait. It should be awesome. Do you think they'll set up Shaughnessy pretty tough? Or will they, like, when, when they had the... When they had the men's open, uh, yeah. I guess it's like a decade ago, like it was set up like the U.S. Open. And I can't remember what the winning score was, but I think it was only a few under. So, so I this has been a very popular question, and you are 100% correct. It was four under. Four okay. under was the winning score uh, at 2000, uh, 2011 when Shaughnessy had the Canadian Open. And, um, I, I mean, I, I don't think that they're going to set it up all that penal but like when we played the media day, like those greens are the fastest greens I've putted on yes. in a very, very long time. And I don't think that they're going to slow those down per se. You know, the rest still going to be there. This is still a very, very high level championship golf course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think that they need to, in air quotes, set it up all that difficult. I think it's just a difficult golf course, but I'm incredibly keen to see how, uh, you know, how these golfers take this golf course on um, and just like how the rink is set up. I got a couple pictures from that par three seventeenth hole. Things look really, really good there. Mm-hmm. Um, weather I think is supposed to be all right next week too. So it should be in a, it should be an awesome week for sure. Uh, looking forward to it, Adam. Hopefully we'll be able to catch up uh, or at yes, least meet, wait. meet at Shaughnessy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, next I week. would love it. All right. Enjoy your Dude. travels. See you out here. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. That's but, Adam Stanley. Yeah, I'm back. You're back. Yeah, I took a little break there. Yeah, you I'm took back. the Halford break off from <laughs> I took golf. The Halford golf break. Yeah. Sometimes Halford will ask golf questions, but they're all only about live. Like, because he got, he actually got legitimately the one golf story that, that penetrates. Story. Yeah, a couple yeah, mini yeah. golf questions as well. Yeah, yeah. He's like, when when there's a windmill, how <laughs> fast should it be spinning? <laughs> Do you prefer the underwater theme or the jungle theme for when you when you go mini golfing? Uh, the team conversation is fascinating, though. And I was thinking about it as you guys were talking. I was listening, believe it or not. So much in sports, I'm starting to realize, is just about tradition, right? Like people always talk, mm-hmm. you know, like we should have uh, we should have relegation and promotion in North American sports. And it's like in theory, I can see that, but sure. it's never going to happen because right. why not? Because it's just not how we do things here, and yeah. like. The owners won't allow it. Yeah, it's like we should value uh, the uh, the regular season more in North American sports, like they do in Europe. It's like, yeah, we're probably not going to do that either because we just that's Mm -hmm. not what we've grown up caring about. And I look at the, I think that's the challenge for the PGA because you think about it, you know, you look at F one. That's kind of an analogy for maybe what team golf would look like, right? Like you have these sponsors and people have incredible emotional connections to like Ferrari and Mm -hmm. and uh, Williams going back back in the day, you know, in F1. But it's just when that doesn't already exist, when that tradition of caring about those teams doesn't already exist, it's really hard to out of nothing create that emotional connection. The players have to care too. Yeah, and this is what we always say at the All Star Game, right? If the players Mm. don't care, then why should I care? And that's why the home run derby seems to me to be like the only thing that matters in the skills competitions of anything. Yeah. Because like it matters. The players care. The players are trying. It mattered to Vladdy. And when you look at the names that have won Mm -hmm. the home run derby, it's it's a Hall of Famers, right? Like you want you want to have that on your resume. Do you care if you win the accuracy shooting in the in the NHL? No. Like even fastest skater or harder shot, you're kind of like those. I think they used to be 
bigger, but I I, I don't even like PD won it this year, didn't it? But like yeah. I, I like, but do we even make a big deal of that? I mean, I think a little we bit. We talked about it for like bit. five minutes. Yeah, the next not day. like it used to be. Though. Yeah, no. not yeah. not like it used to be. It's kind of like you know, back in the day, I was like. God, what is Chara gonna do? Yeah, I mean, did they even have it when Al McInnes was shooting? I don't, I don't even know. Like, I don't, I don't remember because it just like to me at least they probably did. It doesn't matter, right? Um, but yeah, the players, the players have to care. So if you get a situation where you put some teams together on the PGA Tour, like I think there's the possibility for the players to care, mm-hmm. especially if they're like, I'm on Tiger's team, mm. and especially if they have some fun with it. You have to have the banter. That's what golf is about for a lot of us that just go out and play for fun, right? Like, it's the banter. It's the little competitions that you can set up with each other. And that is what that was, is what would have to happen, right? Like, the, the, the players would have to care about their team's results and not just about the individual accomplishment. And that's hard to do yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah, you can get fired up for the Ryder Cup because you're playing for your country. I think and, that matters a lot And again, lot there's more. history there, right? Like the Ryder, yes. we treat the Ryder Cup like a big deal, so the players think it's a big deal. Well, it's like the difference between uh, in Canada, playing for your country in hockey and playing for your country in basketball. Mm. The tradition is when you're a young hockey player, and let's say you're an elite hockey player growing up in Canada, your first dream might be to play for the World Junior Team. Right. Like that might be your first, like, whoa, this is really happening. Yeah, getting drafted would be big too. But like among those things, you're like, okay, I have watched the World Juniors every year. Yeah. And I know that there's Canadians that have that become legends just At that by tournament. their just by their work. Yeah. Even if their NHL careers don't necessarily pan out, they are remembered for what happened at the World Juniors. The players really care. They want to be part of that team, and that translates to the fan base, like, you know, the Canadian hockey fans that clearly care based on the attendance at some of these tournaments. Yeah, and I would compare it not just to representing Canada in hockey versus Canada basketball, but representing Canada in hockey at an Olympics versus doing it at the World Cup in 2016, right? Because the tradition of the Canada Cup and the Summit Series got lost. Yes, but where It was the replaced by the Olympics. Like, the Olympics are a big deal. Yeah. That World Cup was not a big deal, right? You know what I mean? And that's, well, and for, it's, for numerous reasons. The, the NHL is going through the exact same thing that the mm-hmm. PGA is going to go through if they try to make team golf a thing where it's really hard to spin out of thin air, right? Just by, you know, you jumpstarting it, the, the kind of prestige and tradition and cachet that these big international You cannot just throw money at it. Yeah. You can't do that. So the NHL tried this with the All-Star game when they brought in three-on-three. And do you remember the first three-on-three All-Star game with John Scott? Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. The guys were trying. I was at that one. And I asked the players afterwards, like, you guys almost look tired. <laughs> and Corey Perry kind of laughed. He was like, he was like, I, it was actually one of my proudest moments in actually making Corey Perry said, laugh. Did he say great question? You no, know, he's just like, he's usually pretty miserable. Believe it or not, Corey Perry, miserable <laughs> with the media. But like, he actually kind of chuckled. He's like, yeah, I was, I was, I was almost out of gas out there. And he knows it. Like, it's the all-star game, yeah. right? And they tried to throw some money at it. Like, you know, the winning team gets a million bucks, which isn't nothing, right? I know these guys make a lot of money, but imagine splitting that up with, what mm-hmm. was it, like seven or eight yeah, guys? Yeah, not like, that many guys. It's a nice car, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I just got a nice car for winning a three-on-three tournament. That's cool. Um, but then it's gone away. Like, nobody cares now. Yeah. It's it's right back to where it was 
because the players aren't all that invested in it. And some people will still enjoy watching it, and that's fine. They're always going to, probably always going to have the All Star game, and we'll probably always have the debate about, you know, how are we going to improve this sort of thing. But like, it all comes down to whether or not the players care. And that's what the NBA is going, and they're trying to do what you're just talking about, right? Throwing money at it. They're launching their in season cup idea, and I, I, I don't yes. know what the what the monetary award is off the top of my head, but that's what they're trying to do, mm-hmm. right? The winner. Yeah, I think it's like $10 million. It's not it's nothing. It's a fairly significant nothing, chunk of money. Yeah. And again, even you know, even for somebody making a lot of money, you mm-hmm. know, you divide that up and your share is just shy of a million dollars or something. Yeah. Like, that's pretty good. But, but, but it's but, not the FA Cup. No, that's the thing. Half and a million for each winning player. For each winning, for each the player NBA on the winner team. So, yeah. And I mean... If you're a bottom of the roster player, like that's a that's yeah. a huge. Yeah, you're like, come on, guys, yeah, yeah, let's go. We're going to be cheering extra hard come from on, the LeBron, bench. Come on, LeBron, please do it for me, right? Yeah. But it also comes down to as much as we, as much as players are motivated by money, they're also motivated by the things that affect their legacy, right? Mm-hmm. Will winning an NBA in season cup will that help you get into the Hall of Fame? You know what I mean? Like, will that help you win the MVP? Until the answer to those questions is yes, Mm -hmm. the best players aren't going to care about it that much, just like they don't care about the All-Star game that much. Yeah, I have to admit I'm a bit bearish on that idea for the NBA. I hope it works out. Like, I hope they have success and people care about it. And I don't expect them to care right away. Like, I think they're probably... Yeah, you got to stick with it. You you do have to stick with it, but the FA Cup, and I know they they were kind of comparing it to that, like they, they've always wanted to bring in like a European style competition, mm-hmm. and, the, and the most famous one is probably the FA Cup. Mm-hmm. It has this tradition, and it also has the idea of these teams from like the third or fourth division in yep. England being able to pull a massive upset, or at the very least, just play some of the big dogs. Mm-hmm. And then you have this final that is part of the sporting schedule in England. Like you have the final at Wembley, and it's a big deal. Half of the supporters are on one side, the other half are on the other, and it's a spectacle, right? And you want to be, as a fan, you want to be part of the spectacle. You want to say, you know what? I went to I went to an FA Cup yeah. final. And then also for the teams, it affects the team's legacy. Like being, winning the FA Cup last year for Man City allowed them to pull off the trouble. Mm-hmm. Like they won the regular season or the league, and they won the FA Cup, and then they won the Champions League. So they pulled off that trouble and so that FA Cup win gave them something, gave them something tangible. Is there going to be in the NBA like, we're the first team to win the whatever cup it's yeah. called and the NBA title? Will that matter? We did the yeah, double. The double? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. Especially if like a bad team wins it this year. You know what I mean? Then it's going to be like, oh, well, who cares? The Hornets won it. It, it can't be a big deal. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like the NBA almost needs a really good team to win it, to try to give it some cachet. And, but, you know, your point about the FA Cup, I mean, first of all, 150 years of history. I think the te- the number of teams thing is a good point, too. This year in the FA Cup, according to Wikipedia, there are going to be 729 teams yeah, entered yeah. in the competition. Yeah, there's like early there, early There's phases. rounds that we don't yeah, we think don't about, about or we don't see, but yeah. they're like the real, like, you know, semi-pro mm-hmm. amateur teams dueling it out for the chance to go on later. But, like, that gives it a ton of weight. Like, 730 teams in this yeah. competition, No, it's right? a cool competition. It's really cool. Not so cool as Thomas Trance, but he's going to join <laughs> us next anyway on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The People's Show, your home for Vancouver summer sports talk. Subscribe to the podcast now. And what we just have to call Thomas Trance erotica. 
erotica. Coarse. Thomas Grant's erotica. Expected goals. Thomas Grant's erotica. Dog's model. Thomas Grant's erotica. All right, that can only mean one thing. Welcome back. Halford and Bruff here, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Uh, Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. You know, I was just thinking, um, we're going to talk to Drance uh, coming up next. We would never think to, like, book Halford. You know what? I actually did think about doing that once, and I thought it'd be hilarious. But I'm sure he wouldn't. He wouldn't come. How like, would you like, imagine no. you, like ask him questions about the Canucks? He's like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you calling me right now? <laughs> like, please don't. Yeah. I feel like he's still on the team. Oh, really? Okay. The only two hosts that get booked as guests on other shows, and Drance is a little different because he yeah. has the athletic role as well. But Drance mm-hmm. and Sat, Sat, yeah, yeah he's the, a good insider. The, uh, yeah, so the, yeah. everyone else not worth talking to, frankly. Yeah, I feel yeah. like Halford would be a good Including guest. Me. Like I, I'm just thinking back to like my phone conversations with Halford. He's, he's yeah. on the phone. I feel like he'd be a good guest. What uh, w- w- I feel like for soccer. Yeah, if like if if leading up to the World Cup, I could see booking Halford on another show on mm-hmm. the station to talk. That's soccer. about it, though. He would probably say no, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, he'd be like, "I'm on the air for three hours." A yeah, day. and then I <laughs> then I'm done. <laughs> that's what I'm paid for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bye. <laughs> see you on the air. Uh, do we have to answer ready? Ready to go? Yeah. All right. Uh, now joining us from Sportsnet 650, and also of course from the Athletica, our guy Thomas Trance. What's going on, man? Not much, boys. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. We're doing well. Yeah, we were discussing earlier, um, trying to figure out when Petey's going to sign an extension. Where are you handicapping it at, uh, Drance? This organization, especially over the last year, um, has come out of left field a little bit with a variety of big moves. So I think a bit of a fool's errand to handicap it. What I would say, though, is the dynamic that we're in is really complicated for reasons that have nothing to do with Pedersen or with the Canucks, frankly. Um, you look at where we're at, right? And, and we're in one last flat cap summer where, you know, prices were pretty modest uh, it, across the board, right, in, in terms of what players signed for in free agency this year. Uh, I think most people in the industry are projecting, you know, something like a $4 million lift next season. And then – Perhaps a significant, like, you know, I, I've heard agents and, and general managers and a variety of people with real skin in the game uh, discuss sort of the season beyond next year. So not 2023-24, but 24-25 as like an elevator season or an escalator season, like a year where the cap might really go up, right? So if you're Pedersen, I think it's really difficult to – figure out what your value is on something like an eight-year deal or and maybe you do go shorter, but, it, but if you want to go max term on your third contract, you know, you'd be signing a deal that could be well below market, like well below market by year two of the deal, right? right? Like that's really complicated to figure out how to value. Um, you know, the, the AHO comp sort of looms large for us, right? But first of all, that's you know, a, a team that wins or, or contends anyway every year, right? Uh, that's a low-tax market, right? There, there's sort of different factors at play, and that's a sweetheart contract. If you're not 
keen to necessarily sign a sweetheart contract in a, in a high tax jurisdiction. Um, or if you want to wait and see and be like, Hey, look, like we've got to make some progress here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's your incentive to do that type of deal early? I'm not saying that's not a possibility. I, I'm just not expecting it. So I, I won't be like stunned. It's not like my jaw will hit the floor. And I, I don't mean to hedge. You know me. I, I hate to hedge. Like, I want to have a take. But um, I wouldn't be shocked. My jaw wouldn't hit the floor if the deal was, like, announced around Labor Day. Like, if just, like, they've sure. been working quietly in the background and we get it, you know, before training camp. That won't blow me away. Mm-hmm. But I won't be surprised at all if this drags into the season. Um, you know, for me, I think you want to try and get it done before this deal expires because once you get into that final year and you've got arbitration rights and, you know, you're only one year away from unrestricted free agency and say the cap goes up $4 million, but, like, everyone's like, hey, it could be a, you know, $94, $95 million cap and you'd be hitting unrestricted free agency. Like, that's a situation I don't think you want to be in. If you're the Vancouver Canucks, that becomes, like, a pretty – compelling mix of factors right, yeah. for, for anyone, any individual. This isn't like a, a Pedersen specific thing because I don't think he's a guy who's like a, a pure maximize my income guy. Like I mm-hmm. think he's a guy who wants to win and be in a situation where he's having fun playing hockey uh, above all else. I think it's more holistic, but obviously everyone wants to get paid. So, uh, you know, th- that to me is where I think it gets a little dicier for the Canucks, but yeah, more than anything, I think if you're trying to handicap when this happens, um, you know, look, looking at the board, right, and seeing how the big picture impacts this negotiation, I think will tell you the most about it, particularly because, um, you know, it, it's been so quiet out of the Canucks, not just around this negotiation, but around um, most big ticket items that they've been considering over the course of the last 14, 15 months. Transfer, how possible is it that this end up, this uh, PD contract, if he signs with the Canucks, ends up being like three or four years? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting possibility. I, I th- that's a good way to potentially hedge it, right? Yeah. Like to, to bridge the gap that I just described mm-hmm. would be to go shorter term, um, you know, and, and Pedersen's still young enough that he'd still be in his 20s, right? When when he'd hit unrestricted for agency. Although, you know, even a, even a four-year term means that you're five years out from, from getting a chance to hit unrestricted for agency. I think he'd be 29 because he'll turn 25. Um, early, early uh, in the fall. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, for sure an interesting possibility. Aho obviously did go long, um, but we've got Matthews out there, and, and I think a lot of people expect that one to be short just as his second contract was sort of uniquely short. Like, we don't see a lot of, um, a lot of uh, what, what was it, four or five-year terms? Five, yeah. Yeah, yeah on, a, on a second contract. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, a potential way that you could do it to protect the player, right. From signing for, you know, the amount that a third line center ends up making in three years. Right. Cause that's absolutely the world we could be in. Right. Like that, that there's no question about it. I, I've been saying ever since the flat cap came in, I've been saying someone in the NHL, there's someone out there who's going to be Timofey Mozgov, right? Like, like imagine being JT Comfer, Right where you're like the best unrestricted free agent center, even though you're probably a third line center, who comes on the market right as the cap hit like hit uh, the cap hits like 98 million, right? Like that's the, yeah, like that's what you want to be. Someone in the league, and I, someone in the league is going to be Timothy Mozgov, where they sign for an amount that just like melts our brain, right? And um, 
so yeah, I mean, could that be like the the question I guess I, I have is like, could that be a big name guy? Because then I really think there there's a chance to detonate uh, the salary structure, which, you know, it's been so sticky, right? Like that's one thing that NHL teams across the board as a group have done extraordinarily well, right? Like when, when did McDavid sign for yeah. 12 point? Like it feels like forever ago and no one's broken it. Maybe Drysaddle will be the guy to do that. He'd be in position to do it. Yeah, he would be. That's a good point. But can he do that on the same team or would he have yeah. to get the market? It feels like it's going to be Matthews that breaks that barrier in a in a yeah, meaningful right. way, right? Yeah. But, I mean, again, it's going short-term, so is he going to push it as far as he possibly could? And, I mean, that's the other thing with the po- possibility of a short-term deal for Pedersen is we always think in the mindset of shorter-term means lower AAV, but when you're talking about a player of Elias Pedersen's status, and specifically with the kind of the cap dynamics that you're laying out, I mean – is there is there a significant enough potential savings on the AAV to make a let's say a four year or three or four year extension palatable from a Canucks perspective? Um, I mean, I don't think you with, with so with players like Pedersen, I don't think you worry too much about the term, right? Like that's one thing that I'd sort of bear in mind in, in doing a deal with a player. Like he's hard to overpay. Right? Like he's actually hard to overpay. It's hard to sign him to a deal that doesn't make sense, which is one thing that's always bothered me about like the core four discussion regarding Toronto. And it's not Jason that I'm a Maple Leafs fan. It's that, uh, it's that, you know, like, oh no, you're paying the best playmaker in the league 10 and a half million. Like, yeah, who cares? Like, who cares? That's great. You, you kill to have that guy. You kill to have that guy. 30 teams would love to have that guy. Like that's, you know, you don't worry about overpaying the best players in the league. And when you model out Pedersen's impact, like this is a guy who's, you know, pretty safely projected to be worth, you know, 10, 10 to $12 million per season through the rest of this decade. Like, I just don't even think, you know, if you go long, you're thrilled to lock in Pedersen for, you know, uh, the the rest of his 20s and, and the first two seasons of his 30s. Because, again, at yeah. his age, it's, like, hard to sign him to a deal where you're, like, talking about it as a risky maneuver. Mm-hmm. And if you sign him for four or five years, you know, it, and, and, and you shave a million off the cap hit, like, great. That's even – I mean, that's that might be better, right? Like, there there's – arguably that might be better because then you're in the dynamic that you would have been at. Like, one of the, one of the reasons that I'm always – dogmatic frankly about seeing teams bet big long uh out of uh second contracts or on second contracts is you know i think your goal in a efficiency contest hard cap system should basically be to mine a guy's 20s and then let someone else do the deal in their 30s right like if you're going to win a stanley cup in the mm-hmm. first two three years or, or have a chance to then sure you can you can take on that risk but you also get to make that choice like right at the age that the guy is, you know, uh, like like the Jonathan Huberto Uyghur trades from from Florida's perspective, right? right like, right, yeah. hey, bye guys, and they still have value too, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me, that's what teams should be trying to set themselves up to do on elite talent. Uh, if if you were able to do four or five with Pedersen, you'd basically have gotten, you'd basically get the benefit. I mean, not quite the cap benefit, but pretty close of of not having messed up and bridged him in the first place. So to me, uh, a four or five year term, um, you know, the, the, the AAV um, 
is going to be high no matter what. And the, and the term almost doesn't matter. If you get him for eight, great. If you get him for four, great. Like, uh, you know, the, on, on some level, even though this is obviously a complicated contract and teams still have to be very careful about how they structure deals for the best players, um, just get him signed. Like this guy, this guy's at a caliber where the discussion almost flips a little bit. And, and some of the details that we like to obsess over and should obsess over, especially when we're talking about, you know, third line centers, depth defensemen, right? Like guys, the, the guys we, you know, so often talk about their contracts uh, with Pedersen. It's, it's just a little different. Hey, Dranser, I enjoyed your article in the athletic. Uh, the headline was why Canucks expectations for next season must extend beyond the playoffs I was kind of laughing thinking about you walking around the city aimlessly or sitting on <laughs> patios drinking or whatever and just like all you could think about was the Canucks I'm like there's more to life transfer there's more to life <laughs> but you came up with a pretty good uh you came up with a pretty good column why don't you explain for the listeners what were you, what you were thinking and what your idea behind this column was yeah I, I just was thinking about you know, I, I, you take a bunch of time off in the summer, um, and I did in July, and, and you try and think of, you know, in, in my case anyway, like, there's a lot that the Canucks accomplished this summer that I actually really like, right? Like, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples, but, but the, the obvious stuff is, you know, you, you buy out Oliver ekman Larson, right? And, and Ethan Bear gets hurt, so he's not qualified, and that freed up like $9.5 million in space. And that nine and a half million in space was used to obviously add size to the back end in Susie and Cole, and then, you know, bolster some of the defensive skill uh, up front with Bluger and Pius Suter. And, you know, that's it. Like that's, that's the nine and a half million. That's the Oliver Ekman Larson buyout money. And that's the, you know, Ethan bear gets non-tendered and, and thus that money is not, you know, earmarked for his arbitration award and, or his settlement. Um, and that, that all makes sense, and it's all relatively low risk in terms of the years committed. I, I, you know, Susie's the longest deal at three, Pius Suter at two. I, I think that the term there is a feature, not a bug. Um, you know, th- that's like the sort of offseason that I think people who've wanted to see this team take a reasonable and sensible approach to addressing their sort of um, their, their shortcomings mm-hmm. wanted to see for like years, right? Like bargain shop a little bit, right? They do an August deal for the first time in forever. Um, you know, don't, don't commit a ton of term to, to depth guys in free agency. And, and maybe you could argue that Suter or Susie, excuse me, sort of breaks that mold, but like this was the Not off really, season. No. Well, three years is it, like three. If he's only a third pair guy, three years, you know, consider the bar for disastrous contracts. It's below yeah, that bar. for sure. It will, uh, but that's our bar, you know, like that's, that's our Stockholm syndrome yeah. bar, rough. Like, you know, I'm just saying there is material risk there and I don't want to doubt totally, it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, but like, this was the off season we we're waiting for. And then, you know, I, I was thinking about too, like this team, instead of having a wash of like one and a half million dollar fourth liners, like everyone, all their depth guys are, are at the league minimum. And most are on two-way deals. And that, to me, too, feels like a really reasonable reaction to, hey, we brought, we brought an AHL franchise locally, right? They spent, like, like wild in the summer of um, 2021 
the Oliver Ekman Larson trade summer. Remember that was the first year that Abbotsford was here and it was like, Nick Patan, sure, you get a you, you know, a one way deal and they brought in all these big name AHLers and had this huge AHL budget. And now it's like all of those guys are two-way. Like uh, Studnika and Spencer Martin are the only one-way contracts that could end up in the AHL, and both are under 800K. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of discipline in that, it, it, and, and it's sort of been like a, a slow thing. Even even like the Heronic um, Kuzmenko deals are like short-term, right? I, I mean – all of this sort of flies in the face uh, with with the let's extend a thirty year old yeah. granted point per game player to a seven year deal. But like since that deal, right? Since that deal, at least things have been short term. Mm-hmm. Like at least with the exception of Miller, this team has now moved itself in a direction where if it doesn't work, you can actually disassemble it somewhat easily, right? Like there, there's the sort of discipline and optionality that I'm always ranting about that's that's been shown over the course of the summer and, and it's welcome. And, and so I'm sort of looking at that and thinking, okay, you know, this is a team that started to do some interesting things after a season that, you know, like a really cataclysmic season. Like, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it should be understated just how difficult last year was. Yeah. JT Miller made that clear on the podcast. Like how, yeah, ba- how, like, how bad it was. It was for really everyone involved. Yeah. For everyone in bed, for, for everyone in bed for everyone who was down bad and involved. And, you know, to me anyway, when this team is talked about or thought about, or when I think about what I'm going to be asked on a radio hit, right? It's always like, well, do you think they're going to be a playoff team? And I, I just feel like that sets us up or frames a conversation about what this team's done well, but also what's come before it, what it's done poorly in, in sort of the wrong way, because there is a world where this team, in fact, you know, where this team is at in terms of its level, like I think the the clearest route to the playoffs, you know, may be the Pedersen line shoots an ungodly percentage and Demko stands on his head for 65 games. And then, you know, that ne- doesn't necessarily tell us mm-hmm. that this club's moving in the right direction. It doesn't necessarily show us that some of the sharp bets that or the bets that I think are sharp anyway, that this front office has made this summer have necessarily paid off. Like wh- what if the team makes the playoffs because their goaltending is amazing, but like Carson Soucy struggles right. and, and is, is a depth guy. And, um, you know, JT Miller has, you know, 35 on five points again, um, isn't a matchup centerman. In fact, they have to move him back to the wing. He's not a centerman at all. And, you know, loses 10% off his first step in a way that gives you the yips or gets you nervous Mm -hmm. about what year two of that deal looks like. Like, is that worth it? Like, is that good? Are we going to be, are we going to be sitting here in April after the Canucks, you know, make the playoffs, but lose in five and all of those underlying things happen and say that was successful. Do you think, do you think that's going to be deeply worrying? Do you think the management group almost is actually considering what if things don't go well? next season like the the way they're doing these moves or have they got this plan b because i think what we saw a lot of with the previous management group was how can i put this like a reckless optimism like that you know like that things will go well we're optimistic about it and the deals that were signed almost like if this doesn't go well it's going to be a disaster and that's like exactly what happened yeah. with the likes of ericsson or especially oel 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd meant, you know what I'd mentioned the Miller trade as like number one for that, right. Which where you have the uh, conditional first, right. Like the conditions on that first was like deeply, deeply optimistic. Right now it paid off. But to me, that's like more than the Erickson deal or the OEL trade, the conditions on the Miller deal, the fact that they traded this, you know, uh, protected first that only, um, that only moved if they made the playoffs, right? Like that, that, that to me was a deeply optimistic trade um, and, and, and a good one as it turned out. But, but in terms of capturing that reckless optimism, I, I, don't, th- I don't know that you'll find a better example from, uh, of like we're betting on ourselves always um, than that. The, yeah, I mean, I think you always have to, in a league this difficult, right, in a league where mistakes are so sticky, uh, and have such dire consequences or can mm-hmm. in, in terms of your options. Uh, I think you have to always consider the downside and you have to build that way. Like you, you have to build that way. You have to be conscious of like, if you're making a mistake, make it on a young guy where you'll have a couple of years to buy them out at a one third, you know, and they're, they're an elite talent anyway. Um, because for the most part, those guys hold value, even if they struggle for a bit. So yeah. You know, I, I mean, that to me is sort of the way that teams have to operate. Um, if you're being responsible, you have to at least be managing your downside risk. You, you can't, um, you know, have one of the worst contracts in the league. You can't, like, I know he I know he got hot for eight weeks, but it's like, man, that Bobrovsky contract kills the Panthers, right? Uh, the Oliver Ekman-Larsen contract kills the Canucks. And, and, yeah, I know they escaped it for one year, but, like, the Bills – still going to be coming due for the rest of this decade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to be managing that risk. So um, I'd hope they are like, I'd hope they're considering what if, um, and, and there are still a variety of things around this team that, you know, concern me um, in, in terms of uh, goalie depth would sort of still be number one. Uh, I still think the puck moving, like w- one thing I was also thinking about this week, I haven't actually written or said this anywhere, but one thing that I, often talked about with you, uh, Jason, and, and also um, Mike, too, and then, uh, and then Jamie every day. <laughs> constantly, constantly. Um, is uh, is uh, the, the construction of this team, and in particular the idea that their defense wasn't involved enough offensively and their forwards weren't good enough defensively, right? Like mm-hmm. that there was this sort of odd build that kind of left the team a little bit stuck. And – you know, I think if you look around the league, like one thing that I'd suggest to you is I really think you need like four and a half, four and a half guys that can move the puck really, really well. And like one of those guys can be in that like Alec Martinez, TJ Brody, Chris Tanev mold of like were elite in transition when they were in their early 20s and are now in their 30s and can still move the puck, maybe can't skate it with the same level no. of dynamism, yeah. right? But, but they know how to win. Right. So like one of those types of guys can be like a 0.5, right? Four and a half guys that can really move the puck from the back end. And, you know, Hronik helps, but by the time you lose bear, right. Who, who, you know, is probably in that like half or a full point mold and, and replace him with Susie and, and Cole. Like, I don't know that that issue is fixed. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I especially, I especially think like, and I think this is high leverage because I know a lot of people have been talking about, you know, well, play Hughes with Juleson or, 
Um, like, I really think that th- you're going to need, you're going to need a guy like a, an Akito Horose or a Christian Milanin in the lineup simply to have enough puck moving. Like, I really don't think this team's going to have enough puck moving with, you know, Juleson added to the, the five guys that we all expect. Like, I, I, I really think it's going to need to be someone who can play on a pair and move the puck because I still think this persistent issue this team has had uh, remains. Like, I still think there's, they're, they're a man and a half short in terms of guys that can really get up and, and get the puck moving consistently, break four checks. Um, you know, do the things that uh, a, a Zach Whitecloud can do in, in tough minutes uh, to really get the puck moving in the right direction. And up front, you know, I still don't like Pius Suter and Teddy Bluger help a lot, but I still don't know if this team has the personnel to grind out three, two wins or four, two wins consistently, right? Like I still don't know that there's enough, high IQ defensive players, especially not higher up the lineup yep. uh, on this team. So as much as I like the work of the summer, I still sort of look at this and think this team might have the same issue. Like this team might have the same issue personnel wise. Now, now management connects management would tell you that, yeah, but the structure that Rick talk is going to play with is going to help us. And they may be right, but to what extent? Like enough that the Canucks are going to be able to do both because that's this is the thing that happens when you're poorly constructed and that we've seen in this market. It's like when this team can score if you let them score if you let them play aggressively, right? Um, but if you try and tighten it up, like Travis Green did in his last 25 Trans, games, buddy, we're super up against the. I hate to do this, but we're super up against the clock. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm being frantically told to both. cut you off by a dog. <laughs> Sorry, no sorry, sorry, man. I don't know. It's not sorry. your fault. Don't worry about don't it. Don't ask me about my summer musings or I'm going to go I was going to say, go enjoy the weather. Go enjoy the weather. Try to try to think about something other than the Canucks, all right? Yeah, I won't do that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, thanks buddy. buddy. Uh, that is Thomas Durant. Yeah, we were playing by playing with fire, asking him that last question, and uh, we got burned. Hey, A-Dog, how does it feel to actually be listened to? When 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 you say we got a break, we I know this break. is incredible. Halford and I are like, shut up, Andy. <laughs> Halford would just look at me with those dead eyes and keep going. Yeah, like yeah. Halford's not listening anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Halford will stare yeah. you in the eye. Well, We're talking I, to the wrong guy I here. I can't cut him off and then us just banter for like a minute after. So we got to go to break. Richie Larea of the White Whitecaps coming up next year. Halford of Rough Sportsnet six fifty.